Hello and welcome to Codish, an exploration of the lives of modern developers. Join us as we dive into topics like languages and frameworks, data and event-driven architectures, and individual and team productivity, all tailored to developers and engineering leaders. This episode is part of our DevLife series. Welcome to Codish. This is Greg Noakes, Master Technical Architect with Heroku. Today we're talking to Meg McLaughlin, who leads research and implementation at ThinkMD. ThinkMD is an organization that's doing some incredible work in the medical field. This is part of a two-part conversation with ThinkMD, and today we're going to talk about what ThinkMD is, how it came about, and what challenges in the world they solve. So my name is Meg McLaughlin. Um, I've been working with ThinkMD pretty much since day one, um, so for about five years. Uh, I lead research and implementation, so working with partners on uh, building out the platform and doing trainings. Um, that's really where my, my work is focused, uh, and my background is in global health practice with a focus on maternal and child health. So could you give me a little bit of background exactly what ThinkMD is? So ThinkMD is a technology company that's really working to build next generation digital clinical intelligence logic. Um, so to put that simply, we're, we're trying to put um, primary healthcare capacity in the hands of basically anyone, anywhere, um, through the use of our UX, UI, and algorithms on the back end. So with that background about ThinkMD, how was it founded and what sort of uh, thought process went into building this application? ThinkMD was founded by by two Barrys. <laughs> so we have Barry Finette and then Barry Heath. Both are um, clinicians themselves, pediatric clinicians. Barry Heath uh, is a specialist in uh, critical care, and Barry Finette um, is a specialist in emergency pediatric care. Barry Finette specifically uh, had been doing some humanitarian work over his career, and he realized that there were some, you know, skills that physicians that really sit with physicians that could be transferred to basically anyone anywhere, um, and especially in places where healthcare access was extremely limited or perhaps non-existent. So he reached out to Barry Heath, um, who's a good colleague and friend of his, and and kind of pitched this idea about creating um, an AI platform that would basically enable those skills to be transferred to frontline health workers or even just a layperson, um, maybe with no clinical background at all, so that they could provide primary healthcare access um, and access healthcare themselves um, wherever they were. So, can you talk a little bit more about how this application actually works? It's quite simple. So, I, I think one of our major goals is, is kind of what we've just said to really eliminate preventable death and provide access to quality health care for anyone, anywhere. Um, but we need to do that simply. So the UX UI piece of our platform, so the way it looks and feels and behaves is extremely simple and intuitive. What the platform starts by doing is it, it guides a user and depending on the end user, if it's someone at home or if it's someone that's working through a program of one of our partners, um, it will collect some initial data, like a user profile. So you'll know who is using it, where they are, and in what capacity they'll be using it, whether they're you know, a nurse, a community health worker, or for a self-assessment. The platform then goes on to take uh, history of the person being assessed. The health worker or the person who's self-assessing will then do um, observations of 
repeat clinical conditions. Um, and then there's some physical assessment aspects as well. So things like taking a heart rate, respiratory rate, um, things like skin turgor, where you simply pinch the skin on the back of the hand or on a child's stomach, as an example, to demonstrate uh, dehydration. And then after all of the questions have been answered, it obligates the end user to answer every question. Uh, mm-hmm. You'll basically get uh, feedback. You'll get feedback on the overall summary of the assessment based on the input that was provided by the user. And depending on the type of user, you will get a triage level. So standard care, immediate or urgent. And then kind of depending on the um, the capabilities and the training of the person using the, the platform, uh, you might be given uh, the treatment and follow-up instructions as well. So very, very simple, very straightforward, and it guides you guides you through the whole process. Full disclosure, I just pinched my arm and I'm dehydrated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I think it's more common than people realize. Um, Absolutely. So it sounds like it, it can actually maybe provide the physician or the, the, the person taking the assessment with some further ideas on, on cause and treatment. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. The overall assessment will basically demonstrate and showcase all of the answers to every single panel or question. Um, so basically every panel has a question. And then once you get that summary, it does, it will, it will basically give you an overall summary of what the causes could be. So, so the four key clinical conditions are dehydration, respiratory distress, uh, malnutrition, and uh, sepsis or, or potential for infection. Um, and then you've got, you know, multiple other like diseases that are also being assessed for things like the potential risk for malaria, skin infection, ear infection, uh, UTIs, you know, among many others that would based on what was inputted would come up as the overall assessment for that child or that person. Cool. So do you guys input some of that data, then track it or monitor it so you can provide like more holistic or community data back on on trends for diseases or, or issues like that? Yeah, that's definitely a direction that we that we go. It depends a lot on our partners as well. You know, a lot of times we're working with partners um, directly within their programming. They're the actual implementers, right? So we're working with their cohorts of frontline health workers who are capturing this community level data. Um, And then from that community level data, exactly as you were just saying, you know, it's possible to visualize and analyze that data to demonstrate things like overall population health, um, you know, monitoring of health over time, and even looking program specific at, you know, how well is the program doing, what are areas for improvement, et cetera. I, I think that probably would help with epidemiology, and that's probably fairly forefront on a lot of people's minds right now with what's going on in the world. But would that help, you know, target resources to locations that might be having outbreaks of malaria or, or, or COVID or, or whatever whatever they're facing? Yeah, that, that's absolutely the hope and, and a lot of the intention. There's something that we're calling syndromic surveillance, um, where you can really break down the clinical pieces of each of those assessments um, so that you can really look at, you know, the potential change in, um, you know, fever and, you know, other indications of potentially malaria um, over a malaria season or perhaps outside of malaria season. Um, you can definitely look at things that help identify potential outbreaks, you know, looking at trends of data over time and definitely during times of either known epidemics or even now during something like a known pandemic um, that can help to identify potential cases, potential clusters, and in that way, 
assist governments and health systems to manage transmission through, you know, knowing where to allocate things like tests or labs or lab equipment or treatment. That's awesome. How many countries and, and languages do you guys target? Currently, uh, we're in upwards of, I think, 13, 13 countries. We've got multiple projects in some countries. Um, we are in Sudan, Somalia, Kenya, Indonesia, Bangladesh, Zambia, Nigeria, South Africa. We have a new project in Togo, potential project in Jordan, and we also have some, some projects going on in the U.S. as well. Quite a bit of variation in, in, in geography um, and in partnerships, which is great. And languages is is the team all in the U.S. or or do you guys have developers and team members scattered across the world? Currently, we are U.S. based. We we are not all well. We have remote colleagues as well. So most of us are living in Vermont, um, mm-hmm. and then we have new colleagues based out of uh, Atlanta, Georgia, and and parts of Michigan as well. Some of us do tend to, when we were able, um, have lived abroad and, and have intentions to do so again. That's a part of our, our life and something that we're grateful for in, in, in being in the tech space, for sure. How has COVID impacted the program that you guys are doing? How have you seen COVID impact the overall health uh, data you're getting? How has it really impacted your application, the data you're receiving, and how you're, you're giving back? There's a lot of answers there, I think. Um, so <laughs> so it's the platform that we've worked on and the COVID assessment tool that we've created basically allows for what, what was just mentioned, like a syndromic surveillance type of thing, um, mm-hmm. where you can see, you begin to see trends of, you know, individuals that are demonstrating, you know, high risk of potential COVID. We cannot confirm, obviously, through our application, whether someone actually has COVID. So that would require the testing part. So we are, I would say we are helping and assisting, you know, ministries and health systems and and definitely our partners who are the actual implementers in helping the populations um, that they serve, you know, understand better the situation um, and risks of COVID where, where they are. And speaking to, again, kind of the similar thing we've just mentioned where, you know, knowing where there might be a large cluster of high risk, understanding how to, you know, potentially focus or prioritize that region for testing resources, um, laboratory equipment and, and things like that. But definitely on, on one end of the platform, we have definitely the education piece, right? So we are absolutely contributing to that prevention part as well through our implementing partners, of course. Um, and then uh, the syndromic surveillance kind of ties in the rest of that piece. In the programs in which we're working, to get to your question about how it's impacting, you know, maybe the programs in which we're, we're partners, it's a little bit, you know, concerning based on the focus that is now on COVID, which is granted, of course. Um, but a lot of our partners work in maternal and child health, and and there's a lot of concern about, you know, basically going back on all of the progress that has been made for maternal, newborn, and child health in, in communities in, in low to middle income countries where resources are very low. Campaigns like vaccine campaigns that, um, you know, have people going, you know, health workers going into the community and providing vaccinations to children, like directly to their homes, even those types of efforts have been, um, you know, slowed because of, you know, COVID, fear of COVID and and the realities of COVID. Um, So we're trying to figure out how to maintain support of our 
partners in their, I guess, normal activities, right? Like their maternal, newborn, child health, and other health activities in the community and facility level, um, while also helping to support their efforts in understanding the COVID situation where they're working. Um, so it's kind of twofold. Uh, but we, it's not without the partnerships. None of this is possible. And, and definitely with the ministries and health systems supporting the testing to understand, you know, the factual um, levels of incidence of, of the coronavirus in regions where they live is, you know, essential to getting to the truth. Yeah, I'm sure that, that each locale probably has different cultures, different customs, different beliefs. Um, and so I'm sure you have to really kind of massage the message and target it for each individual locale? You definitely have to work with, um, you know, your on-the-ground partners, people who live in and work with the communities that they're serving, um, and even, you know, obviously members of the communities themselves to understand how to be most effective in that messaging, absolutely. Um, you know, aside from just mere language, um, you know, there, there are a lot of context, cultural context to really be sensitive to and aware of um, so that you can effectively, um, you know, educate individuals on, on, you know, what is currently known about their virus, right? And, and the ways that they can prevent it, um, you know, signs and symptoms of it, when to know to go get testing. And so to really kind of slow um, and or stop the transmission on the community level um, is what we see as being, you know, a part where we can be helpful for sure. Yeah, and I know that um, in more resource-starved or low-resource areas that education can be a problem or a lack of education. And then, of course, that kind of feeds into maybe some superstition or something like that. Do you have any examples of, of overcoming that sort of a, of a, of a hurdle? It's all about working with um, individuals who the community trusts. I would say that's really the biggest thing. And of course, you know, there are probably many examples of, and, and for many diseases, you know, there's a lot of um, maybe not misunderstandings, but like you're saying, like superstitions or cultural beliefs or, you know, that have um, been generated and then remain due to, you know, trusted sources of those communities kind of transferring that information. So we even still have a lot to learn about the coronavirus and, and there's, you know, it's very easy to have misinformation. So I think it's really about, you know, transferring knowledge to the correct people who can, who are trusted by the community and then can share that as well. Health workers are definitely um, a part of that system and just making sure that we as partners and as, you know, health workers ourselves in, in, in some sense are really working to ensure that we have and are, are sharing the most up-to-date, relevant, you know, information as possible um, so that, you know, the information that's being shared is is not misinforming, um, but is rather keeping the communities up to date on on what what is known. Yeah, and that's got to be a challenge, especially with something that's that's moving so fast, like COVID, where where we are learning new things almost every day. It feels like to be able to come back to somebody and say, "Hey, listen, what we thought was true two weeks ago, you know, well, we know a little bit different now, and here's the new information." So there's got to be a real I find it challenging personally and you know, I'm, I'm in technology and I keep getting all these updates and it's like, okay, well now, you know, this is true and I, I thought it wasn't, but you know, so it's. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. It generates a sense of, you know, distrust and, and not, you know, not knowing. So when you don't know, you know, you can assume a lot. We all do that. <laughs> so yeah. it's, that is definitely one of the, one of the biggest challenges for sure, but it's not impossible to overcome. Any, anything that, that, 
you've learned and any surprises that, that, that have come out of those, those kind of learnings that, that you want to talk about or that are top of mind for you that you want to share? So I was in Bangladesh actually in March, kind of when our own country was taking some measures to, to shut things down and understand things better before we made other decisions type of thing. And, um, you know, while I was there working on a project that was non-COVID um, related, uh, you know, obviously the, the news of COVID and the fears of COVID and, um, you know, the misinformation about COVID and, and otherwise um, was, you know, going around the globe. Um, so my colleagues in, in Bangladesh um, and I were working in a region called Jashore um, on this other project. And on our way back, you could see individuals um, like the buses, the ferries, uh, the car, everything was just loaded with people um, who were fleeing from Dhaka, which is the major city there. So it took them quite a bit of, you know, it's it's kind of interesting because you you don't want people to, you know, move too quickly. You don't want them, to, you kind of want them to stay home, right? But in, in situations in like Bangladesh, you know, you've got a lot of informal markets, um, individuals who are going to Dhaka, like the central city, to make, generate income, um, and then bringing that back to their families in the rural villages. And so that's basically what was happening. So it's it's like the realities of a country like Bangladesh and many others, are our own included in some sense. It's hard to know when to kind of provide the messages of what people need to do. Also, it's necessary to consider, you know, the realities for folks wherever they are. Um, in many places in the world, informal markets are the only form of income. And so, you know, social distancing and staying home is almost, you know, not a reality um, for some mm-hmm. folks. So it was just, it was almost amazing to see. It was like, you know, the word traveled to the place where I was and I, I almost got to see like the initial reaction, you know, people fleeing from DACA to go to their homes in the rural communities and then very quickly almost returning back, you know, weeks later, regardless of instruction from their governments and ministries because they needed to do what they needed to do to survive. We, we all know what we need to do and, and what we are advised to do, but sometimes it's really hard um, to communicate why and to understand the reasons for why people do what they have to do. <laughs> It's a great conversation with Meg, who leads research and implementation at ThinkMD. Again, this is part of a two-part episode. Next week, we'll talk with her colleague, Alex, who's the CTO at ThinkMD, about the technical challenges they faced building this platform. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Codish podcast. Codish is produced by Heroku, the easiest way to deploy, manage, and scale your applications in the cloud. If you'd like to learn more about Codish or any of Heroku's podcasts, please visit heroku.com slash podcasts.